Welcome to Final Examination, a podcast that looks at the end of the world. I'm Paul Musgrave. I'm a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Over the past semester in the fall of 2018, four teams of students have researched, reported, and produced stories about how people have dealt with the end of the world right here in Massachusetts. In this episode, Sean Keeley and Clara Silverstein take us to Newburyport to answer the question, for a town that sits right on the water, how soon will it meet the end in the form of climate change? Suspense. It's the backbone of every movie we've ever seen. Masters like Spielberg and Hitchcock maximize just what suspense can do. This isn't shock and awe we're talking about. That's old-fashioned surprise. That's Michael Bay stuff. Things blow up, someone gets shot, but suspense? That's different. That's when we know there's something in the water. Coming closer, but the characters on screen? They don't. You know the music. It's telling you that something's coming. It's big, it's bad, and it's got lots of teeth. The girl splashing around in the water doesn't know any better. She's about to, though. In 1975, Hollywood kept everyone out of the water for an entire summer. Steven Spielberg's Monster Shark Jaws is still one of the most terrifying villains in movie history. It headlined the first real summer blockbuster of American cinema. The fictional town that Jaws haunted, Amity Island, not only changed the way we do movies, but the way we think about sharks. And suspense. Sometimes, the biggest threat is the one we know exists, but it's the one we can't find, catch, or kill. The one lurking just below the surface. But Jaws is particularly special to us here in Massachusetts. It's made locally. You know, it's filmed just over in Martha's Vineyard. Like a lot of great suspense or horror movies, Jaws is set in small-town New England. That's also where we've set our story. Even if you've never been here before, you can already imagine it. This place is practically made for the movies. A small, scenic, coastal town on the Merrimack River in Massachusetts. Welcome to Newburyport. I'm sure most of you listening haven't been here before, so let me be your tour guide. After all, this is my hometown. I'm Sean Keeley, and I'll tell you why I'm so lucky to call this place my home. Before we get to the good stuff, let me throw a couple of figures at you, just so you can get a better picture of what we're looking at. Newburyport is located about 45 minutes north of Boston, basically on the New Hampshire border. The town itself, it sits on the Atlantic coast. On top of that, Newburyport is home to almost 18,000 full-time residents. And there's an industrial park in the town that provides jobs for roughly 2,000 people. Pull off Interstate 95 at exit 57, and within a couple of minutes, you'll feel as though you've traveled straight back into the 19th century. Colonial-style homes line the main streets, and the burgundy brick sidewalks lead to a quaint downtown that houses dozens of local art galleries, boutiques, museums, and inns. Visit the shops, sit deckside at a restaurant, and enjoy a locally brewed IPA, or soak in the sun as you take a stroll down the Merrimack River boardwalk. Do any of these things, and you're sure to stumble across some of Newburyport's rich history. Ever heard of William Lloyd Garrison? He's the guy that wrote the preface in Frederick Douglass's narrative, and he was a Newburyport resident. Pretty cool. In fact, there's an inn in the downtown to commemorate his work as an abolitionist. For those of you who fell asleep in history class, you're probably more familiar with the U.S. Coast Guard. Newburyport is where it all started. There's actually still a commissioned station in the town that looks out for local boaters. All of this and we still haven't mentioned the real gem this place has to offer. Plum Island. Plum Island is a little barrier island only 11 miles long that sits adjacent to the town. It's bordered by the Merrimack River, which happens to be the largest river in New England to the north and the Atlantic to the east. The island has a gentle slope from the ocean to the windswept sand dunes where flowing beach grass waves in the breeze. Grab a book and a beach chair and watch the hours tick by. This place almost sounds too good to be true, and in a way, it is, because like Spielberg's Amity Island, there's something in the water. Only this time it's in the air, and in the hurricanes, and in the nor'easters, the crazy hot summers, and the winters that are warmer than usual, snowier than usual, perhaps more unusual than usual entirely. What we're talking about here doesn't have a mouthful of teeth, but it's a whole lot scarier than that. In 1975, 
Jaws was just a story, the stuff of Hollywood. In 2018, the shark is just a metaphor. And this time, this is a true story. Welcome to New Report at the end of the world. you stand on the subject of climate change, the general consensus is that things aren't really what they used to be, even compared to a couple decades ago. Nobody knows this change better than the people of Newburyport. For Newburyport and nearby Plum Island, which is just three meters above sea level, everybody's lives are tied to the water. The water brings the summer residents, the tourists, and the income. And when the water levels are rising and rising and still rising, everyone living here is on the edge of their seat. Whatever we might say about climate change, in this small New England town, there is a problem and it's right offshore. What we're afraid of is not what might happen, but what's already started to happen. So let's ask the questions, when is it coming, and just how bad is it going to be? And if Newburyport's story is destined to end underwater, what does that mean for the rest of us? To figure that out, we're going to do some fishing. And we're not out to get just part of the shark. We're after the head, the tail, the whole damn thing. Stay tuned after a break for our sponsor. The Department of Political Science at UMass Amherst offers online education courses that give you the flexibility to gain skills, fulfill requirements, and earn credits. The department houses majors in political science and legal studies, giving you the opportunity to take a wide range of courses with the same rigorous academic standards as on-campus courses. Courses being offered for spring 2019 range from introduction to legal studies to popular music, politics, and the law. For more information on how to enroll, visit their website at www.umass.edu cpe enroll or call at 413-545-2438. Kind of like in Jaws, the guy at the center of the story isn't an expert on sharks, the ocean, or even fishing. But Chief Martin Brody has a stake in how things turn out anyway. He gives us a sort of everyman to root for. Now seems like an appropriate time to introduce the president of the Newburyport City Council, Barry Connell. Oh yeah. And just to drive home the point that this is a really small town, Barry also happens to be my neighbor. And off the bat, he's not exactly optimistic. We're going to float away. Yeah, I mean, really. <laughs> Don't buy land on Plum Island, I'll tell you that, right off the, right off the uh-huh. top. You know, in spite of his joke, Barry takes this stuff very seriously. And he's a great guy. He told me that he heads a committee that is looking at New Report's climate change resilience and what we have to prepare for as the impacts of climate change land on us. As I hear in the interview, he gave me some pretty great insight into the large-scale goals for the city. I'm on a, uh, a committee that is looking at uh, resiliency and how, what we have to prepare for. Uh, as, you know, the impacts of climate change uh, land on us. Barry and I talked for nearly an hour, and throughout the interview, I could tell that he was really vested in the outcomes for the city. Not only is he headed the Newburyport City Council, but he also has a background in environmental engineering, and he's taught courses in the area about Newburyport's coastal geography. It's hard to find someone who knows more about both local politics and coastal geography. Barry is the exact guy we wanted to talk to in this case. So, back to the interview. Remember when I talked about the Merrimack earlier, and how it's the largest river in New England? Well, the Merrimack is massive. We're talking 117 miles long massive. And the size and force of the Merrimack plays a key part in our story. The Merrimack runs adjacent to Newburyport's downtown before draining into the Atlantic, where both sides are furnished with man-made jetties. As I said, the mouth of the Merrimack is bordered by Plum Island. 
Understanding the geography of the Merrimack is a crucial part in understanding how New Report is affected by climate change. Barry explained the significance of the Merrimack's geography in our interview. You know, we have the best of both worlds and the worst of both worlds. That is, we're on the coast, so we enjoy the salt water, but we have this huge river running through the middle of the city of freshwater, which under most circumstances, as you know, is terrific. Except that means that we are exposed to coastal storms, to coastal um, flooding. The impacts of coastal flooding are easy to talk about, but hard to imagine. Now I'd ask you to take out your phone and look at the photograph used in the podcast. The flooded area you see is Cashman Park. Under normal circumstances, a grass field extends about 300 meters beyond that maroon sign to the river's edge. When I took this picture, Newburyport was in the midst of the March 2018 King Tide. The tide itself was solely responsible for the flooding. This happened without the presence of a storm surge, and as you can see, the skies above are blue. Can you imagine what would, would have been the case if the wrong storm coincided with the wrong tide? This would have been disastrous. Now, I played soccer on the field at Cashman Park when I was a kid. Some of my fondest memories were formed when my parents watched me play here. The fact that Cashman Park floods during storms or exceptionally high tides is an indicator that this is only going to get worse in the future, as the rising waters from climate change further encroach on the floodplain. If Cashman Park is underwater, there are future costs for generations that no longer have the opportunity to form the same memories that I once did. To be sure, this is a loss for Newburyport's culture, albeit an admittedly small one. In fact, it pales in comparison to some of the vulnerable areas Barry told me that the Newburyport city government had identified. There are really four main issues we're, we're most concerned with, uh, our, our, our yep. greatest vulnerabilities. What we do is some, we have some computer modeling that shows as water rises and is driven up by a storm, what's the first thing to go? Our number one okay. vulnerability is the sewer treatment plant down on Water Street. Uh, that's number one. Uh, that'll okay. be breached uh, under present circumstances uh, very easily. It has been breached before, but not completely breached. Okay. The second most vulnerable property, uh, which is private property, is that condo development, just the upriver side, uh, River's Edge condos, uh, upriver side of the Gillis Bridge. They're underwater. Third, um, the streams that drain our industrial park yep. surge up and flood the industrial park. Now, that's 2,000 2, people employed there. And our fourth, which is the most uh, scary to most people, our storm drain system flows only by gravity. Um, you know, with a, a, a Hurricane Sandy-type event, the storm drains won't be draining water out of the downtown. It'll be flooding water into the downtown. So those are the four major vulnerabilities that we have to address within the next five to ten years. So again, the four main vulnerabilities, the sewage treatment plant, the apartment complex, the industrial park drainage streams, and the city storm drains are all contained to mainland Newburyport and are susceptible if the Merrimack floods. So what does Barry think we need to do to stop the bleeding? What I gather is that when the sewage treatment plant floods, you run the risk of having contaminants enter the river and subjecting the ecosystem to wastewater. But this can be mitigated in the present by building retaining walls on the border between the river and the plant to stop erosion and keep waves from spilling into the plant. The streams in the industrial park are going to have to be met with check dams to stop rising floodwaters from reaching that far. The same sort of infrastructure is going to have to be put in place in the city storm drains. But what about when floodwaters reach the second vulnerability, the apartment complex? Well, bye-bye. <laughs> there's no, there's, you can't, that's wow. Yeah. No, that's private. We, 
we can't what? afford to do that, and we, we shouldn't. Barry's right. The city isn't responsible for private development on the river's edge. That's asking too much from a municipality that already has a lot to protect. And speaking of private development, it's time to talk about what's happening on Plum Island, where the majority of the development that has occurred is private, in the form of beachfront houses. Several decades ago, the Army Corps of Engineers built a jetty adjacent to Plum Island that marked the point where the mouth of the Merrimack River flowed into the Atlantic. Because the jetty shortened the width of the river, the flow rate sped up. This had the effect of pushing scouring sediment further into the ocean, the sediment that once landed on Plum Island. Long story short, the jetty precluded the natural sediment settling patterns and exacerbated the erosion processes. There are parts of the island that are retreating into the water at roughly 24 feet per year. So how are Plum Island's residents reacting to this? I mean, clearly they are aware of the fact that the island is shrinking. Barry told me that two to three houses fall into the Atlantic because of erosion every year. And during Hurricane Sandy in 2012, a total of 14 houses were lost. Because of this, it's almost impossible to get home insurance unless you're grandfathered in. It's best to form a dichotomy between the two types of residents on Plum Island. First, there's the rich newcomers, and then there are the residual residents who own their home prior to erosion becoming a major issue. Listen as Barry and I hash out why each party maintains ownership in the face of almost certain destruction. Uh, if you have disposable income, if you're thinking, well, this might be a second house, you know, for vacations, things like that, and maybe I'll rent it out and make a little money on the on the side to pay for my mortgage. Um, yep. People still buy those houses. So it's not but, necessarily people people aren't buying houses that are like hooked into the community and have to live here every day. It's just people with. Uh, disposable income a lot of the time that don't have to worry about the threat of climate change and like long-term. Yeah. I think that, I think you've got it. Yeah. I think that's it. The other, the other factor is that, um, um, you know, people who have owned their properties for many years, you know, sometimes multiple fam, you know, generations, people have handed down grandpa, gave it to my dad, my dad gave it to me. Uh, you know, they, they're not investing very much in their properties. They'll upgrade it in, in little ways. But um, a lot of those folks are looking at their property and saying, well, we'll keep it because we love the island, but uh, we don't expect to pass it on to our children. Talk about the end of the world. I get that it's a little anthropocentric to frame the loss of Plum Island as a loss of a social world. After all, there are endangered species like the piping flowers that call this place home too. But when you've lived in a community your whole life, that's what hits the hardest. Most of the effects on mainland Newburyport seem to be mitigated through infrastructure spending. But Plum Island, that's a different story. If what Barry's telling us is true, and the expectancy is that the island will be overwhelmed by water within a generation, I can say goodbye to dreams of ever taking my kids for a day at my favorite hometown beach. Pretty grim stuff. But this all begs the question, is there any reason for hope? This was the last question I asked Barry. He seemed to think so, but there was a caveat. The city needs help from the state and federal government because the grants they received in the past just aren't sufficient. In the face of all the hardships, Barry seems tentatively optimistic. Well, we're in trouble if we don't do something. Yeah. If we do something, um, we can hold off the effects for a while. So I'm optimistic in that sense that we're going to do what we can do and what we can afford. Um, Right. In the longer run... Um, the longer term, I'm really worried because the the Hurricane Sandy money is almost gone. We don't have other deep pockets of money to tap into on the federal or state level. As a matter of fact, uh, the mayor 
and a couple of people from Plum Island are are uh, next week going down to Congress and to um, into Washington to shake the feds and say, hey, you got to help us out here. We, you know, we're losing Plum Island, but that's just part of our problem. Spitting in a volcano to try to cool it. Perhaps the most powerful message I was left with. To understand the way climate change affects Newburyport, we need to understand the large-scale ecological processes that make climate change tick. And adversely, to understand the way climate change affects regions or nations as a whole, we need to extrapolate evidence from local communities and apply this knowledge to a greater scale. Don't think of climate change as a Newburyport issue. Think of it as an issue that is affecting Newburyport. To understand how our case study is embodied in the national fight against climate change, we're going to switch gears and kick it to my co-host Clara. But first, another break for our sponsor. We'd like to thank the Commonwealth Honors College at UMass Amherst for participating in our podcast. The Commonwealth Honors College is a community of scholars that provides an inclusive and diverse environment for students who are passionate about their studies. Alongside the vast resources of a large public research university, the Commonwealth Honors College offers immersive courses in all fields of study and provides students a personal and hands-on space to prosper through smaller, discussion-based classes. Admission to the Honors College is open for incoming first-year students, current UMass students in their first two years of study, and transfer students from other universities. To learn more, follow the Commonwealth Honors College on Twitter at UMassCHC, online at www.honors.umass.edu, or visit the Bloom Advising Center on the second floor of the Honors College building. Hi, I'm Clara, and I'm not from Newburyport. I'm from Central Mass. So let's be real. I want to know how this is going to affect me. Let's start to zoom out then, because just like Jaws, our story so far seems like a sad but pretty small-scale horror movie. Spielberg's town is tortured by a murderous shark, and in real life, our town's bound to go underwater in like 50 to 100 years. But hey, it's just one town. We're not talking about the whole state, much less the entire country. Right? Sure, we're not talking about the end of the whole wide world. And being honest, this won't affect all of us right now. But this is exactly the mindset that got us into this problem in the first place. We're running out of time to keep saying, eh, that's not my problem. Newburyport is already sending a group of representatives down to D.C. to try to get more help with dealing with this. And Newburyport isn't even the biggest concern right now. Cities like Miami, Boston, they're going to be facing flooding too. The longer politicians put off dealing with this issue, the closer we get to the point of no return. And sadly, for some small cities like Newburyport, we may have already passed it. This issue might be too great for the community to tackle on its own. Newburyport is really a good microcosm of coastal Massachusetts as a whole. With about 18,000 residents, there will be quite a few people who need a place to live if the flooding continues, not to mention the biological loss of the ecosystems. So why is the end of Newburyport, this small tourist town, relevant? Well, I guess you could look at Newburyport as a sort of leader in dealing with this issue. This is one of the first towns in Massachusetts to really face the perils of climate change. How they address this problem could potentially be a way for other towns, not only in Massachusetts, but all over the world to battle this issue. Try to imagine knowing that your hometown was going to be lost within your lifetime, and no matter how much you tried as a community to stop it, there was nothing you could do. Local businesses that were around for generations are starting to move out. Your family friends are looking to move away, and the places you used to play as a child are already gone. It would feel pretty much like a world was ending, right? With our climate changing the way that it is, we're all closer to the water than we'd like to admit. 
What's really freaking people out is that with the stats on climate change, it's going to get from bad to worse a lot sooner than we thought. It's like moving on from Jaws to all those awful Sharknado movies. In the 70s, we had one badass shark to deal with. Now, our biggest nightmare is mobile, a whirlwind of 100 badass sharks, and sooner or later, it's going to be touching down in your own backyard. When National Geographic talked about sea level rising in 2017, this sounded less like a reality and more like a Hollywood apocalypse. By the end of the century, chronic flooding will be occurring from Maine to Texas and along parts of the West Coast. It will affect as many as 670 communities, including Cambridge, Massachusetts, Oakland, California, Miami and St. Petersburg, Florida, and four of the five boroughs in New York City. The magnitude of the coming calamity is so great, the ripple effects will reach far into the interior. Let's say we're giving you those stats about something else, like a nuclear bomb. If we told you that 670 communities were going to be hit by a little to a lot of radioactive fallout, would we call this normal? Or would it be about time to duck and cover? One pretty helpful real estate, er, sorry, climate change site is climatecentral.org. It has all the tools you need to figure out how soon you should be moving. Because when the water starts to move in, we'll all be moving out. Newburyport's a pretty good place to start. There's an 83% chance that Newburyport will have flooded with more than five feet of water at least once between now and 2050. By 2070, those same odds are at 100%. That's why Barry Connell says people living just offshore on Plum Island aren't even bothering to keep up their homes in good shape. A flood of five feet would be absolutely devastating for the coastline and the downtown, which sits practically at sea level. At some point, this town is going to become an old car that keeps breaking down. At what point do you just give up on repairs and buy the new car you've been eyeing online? So back to Jaws again. In the movie, you had a pretty quintessential mayor, Larry Vaughn. That is to say, he was all about the politics, and the optics, and the money. Even with a man-killing shark on the loose, he was hell-bent to keep the beaches open for the tourist-crazy July 4th weekend. He got the coroner to call the shark's first victim the results of a boating accident. When even more damning evidence starts piling up, he tells Sheriff Brody and oceanographer Matt Hooper, now if you fellas are concerned about the beaches, you do whatever it takes to make them safe. But those beaches will be open for this weekend. So basically, keep the people safe enough, but you better keep making us money. Newburyport's story is of course a little different than Amity Island's. No one is exactly denying that there's a shark lurking in the water. We're not calling climate change by another name around here. No boating accident theory. So even if the Mayor Larry Vaughns of the world are calling a shark a shark, what exactly is the problem here? You guessed it, it's still about the money. Maybe you heard of the Cape Wind Project? What was supposed to be the nation's first commercial offshore wind farm was canceled in 2017 due to opposition from locals and faltering financial support. It's best to break the plaintiffs in the Cape Wind case down to two separate parties. There's the community at large, who cited navigational hazards and possible environmental degradation, like seabed wires ruining the ecology and birds that flock in the area. And then there's the wealthy homeowners, like one of the Koch brothers, infamously tied in with fossil fuel interest. They cited spoiled aesthetic views as the reason they didn't want the wind farm. But really, I think it's quite clear that their fossil fuel interests were the reason behind their distaste for the project. Something tells me people won't care so much about their aesthetic views when their homes are underwater. It seems there are no solutions that everyone can agree on. Politicians and locals know that this is an issue, but the holdup comes in people not knowing the best way to deal with it. There's simply not enough time to keep having these debates over and over again. We need to start taking action. What we'd like you to take from this is a sense of urgency. There is a shark in the water and it's getting bolder and bolder every day. For Newburyport, it may be too late to save its cultural and ecological world, but you may still have time. 
Don't let your town be the next to swim too far out into the ocean. Thanks, Clara. That insight was jarring, to say the least. Uh, now let's take a minute to put a bow on this thing. Something that's really interesting from Jaws, uh, the movie itself was a pretty big disaster during filming. It was so bad, the crew mockingly called it flaws. From filming the ocean scenes in the Atlantic instead of in a Hollywood tank, to the mechanical shark acting up, to the shoot taking almost two times longer than was originally planned, a lot of the cinematic classic was improvised along the way. As it turns out, so was the quote that sums the plot up in a nutshell. You're going to need a bigger boat. With our climate changing so fast that the water is pouring in on the land we live, we're also going to have to improvise. And not long from now, yeah, the quote of the movie might become the words of the wise for this century. You and me, we're going to need a bigger boat. See you out on the water. This episode of Final Examination was hosted by Sean Keeley and Clara Silverstein. It was edited by Sean Keeley and Clara Silverstein, and produced by Tara Dugan, Malika Nagan, and Matthew Tobola. The material was researched by Sean Keeley, Malika Nagan, Clara Silverstein, and Matthew Tobola. Special thanks go to Barry Connell, Counselor of Newburyport, and Aaron Jerome, Open Access and Institutional Repository Librarian at the W.E.B. Du Bois Library at UMass Amherst. This podcast was produced by students at the University of Massachusetts Amherst as part of Political Science 390, a course on the politics of the end of the world, led by Assistant Professor Paul Musgrave. It is licensed under a Creative Commons No Derivatives 4.0 International License.